Do I need more lipstick? You've got lipstick on. I mean, it's like the residue. The residue the of residue. good night. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And today in my prickly chair is the trailblazer that is Helen Tupper. Helen is the co-founder and CEO of Amazing If, a company with an ambition to make careers better for everyone. Together with her business partner, Sarah Ellis, she is the author of two Sunday Times bestsellers, The Squiggly Career and You Coach You, and is currently writing her third book as we speak, which is exciting. Together they host the number one career podcast, Squiggly Careers. I love having a fellow podder on. And their TED Talk has been watched by almost two million people. Back in 2015, Helen was awarded the FT's MBA scholarship and she's just back from the States where she was amongst many other amazing female founders after winning a much coveted place on the EY Entrepreneurial Winning Women programs. Helen, it has to be said, is effortlessly stylish and in my opinion, kind and impressive in equal measure or the how she walks in her killer heels. Literally every day, including today, I will never know. <laughs> well, I've trained my feet into the shape of a shoe. and They are very you, happy you heels. You actually have. I actually have. <laughs> Welcome, Helen. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And we walked here in my heels. <laughs> we did. <laughs> and they're never practical, but they are always, they're always part of my outfits. And they look really gorgeous and I'm in flat boots being rather jealous but except and I'm quite comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> Helen are you sitting uncomfortably? I mean yes Gemma. <laughs> Definitely uncomfortably waiting knowing this date was in my diary and thinking oh what are we going to talk about? I mean shoes is a very safe subject. I think we should just talk about shoes. <laughs> I'm sure we will end up talking a little bit about shoes but I feel like we can do a tiny bit better than okay. that. Okay. <laughs> it's fair to say before you started Amazing If, you had a pretty impressive career working for some really big brands. What encouraged you to take the leap into the world of entrepreneurialism? I think when I first started Amazing If, it was a side project. And so I never really thought about me being an entrepreneur. It was a way of doing something I loved outside of my day job, you know, to, to kind of almost like give you more energy. And um, one of my values is freedom. And so I could choose to do that rather than it being sort of, you know, determined by my manager. And I did it with a friend who I got to learn a lot from. And so I sort of got better by doing it. I never really thought that I was being entrepreneurial. I just thought I was doing something that I enjoyed with a friend outside of work. And I actually still think I'm doing that. It's just, it's now inside of work. It's now that is my work, but I'm still doing something I love with the same friend and I still learn an awful lot from her. So sort of 10 years on from that, that's still a very consistent part of what makes me want to keep doing Amazing If and keep growing Amazing If. So how did you turn it from a side hustle to leaving? I think it was Microsoft at the time. Yeah. So when I was at Microsoft, it was about probably six years into it and 
at a time then, I, I was commercial marketing director at Microsoft, working five days a week. So quite a large job. And that was quite demanding on my time. And, you know, I was doing lots of work in the evening. And I had two children. Henry would have been two and a half, three. Madeline would have been like nearly a year old. So quite young children. And I was using a lot of my holiday to go and deliver career training courses for companies wasn't necessarily using my holiday with my family, which probably wasn't a great idea, or just actually to switch off. There was very little switching off because I was just switching from Microsoft to Amazing If. And we had the podcast. So that was growing quite a lot at the time. And we're fitting that in in the evenings. And then that was when Penguin approached us for the book deal for the Squiggly Career. And I think it was that moment of me thinking, I actually don't think I can do all of this now. I'd operated for ages with this sort of principle of don't limit your challenges, challenge your limits. And I was like, yeah, this might be the limit. <laughs> this might be, this might be the limit of the amount of different things I can keep going. And so it was that sort of point where I was like, okay, just try, just try. What's the worst that can happen is you you give this a go for six to nine months. You try and make this a job. You try and make this a business. And worst case scenario, it doesn't work. You maybe do another job alongside it or you just go back to Microsoft. And I I kind of had good enough relationships that I thought within a year, I probably could have gone back, perhaps not to the exact role, but I think I could have gone back to the business. Amazing. I mean, that's a brilliant thing that you could go back. Obviously pretty good at what you do. Well, I don't, I mean, no one actually gave me like a bit of paper to say like, <laughs> you just you know, you'll get out of jail free card on Monopoly. No one gave me like the career card of you can come back when you want to. I'm just, I hope, I hope that they would have had me back. Um, I mean, they're like one of my clients now, which is really lovely. And I've actually got quite a few companies that I've worked for that I now work with in the capacity at Amazing If. And it is so nice because I see company from two different perspectives, from being an employee and then someone who helps their employees. It's lovely. And I think it shows a lot of trust in those relationships when you're able to, you know, continue them in a different capacity. Mm. And has it all been plain sailing? Running my own business yeah, with my best friend. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Um, has it been uncomfortable at times? Yeah, really uncomfortable. I think the hardest point was probably during the pandemic. So pre-pandemic, we were a company that delivered career development largely in person and it was going quite well. But then the pandemic hit and literally within a week, I remember like every day things got cancelled. And I remember I was driving with my husband. He was like, Helen, you're not going to go to Manchester next week, you know. I was like, it's not cancelled yet. It's not cancelled yet. I think I'm going to Manchester next week. And then it got cancelled like in the car. And I was like, I'm not going to Manchester next week. It's six months of planned work just disappeared straight away. And that was quite scary because, you know, I was working on business. My business partner was working on the business. We'd lost the security of sort of like a corporate salary. And at that point, we're like, well, what do we do now? You know, no one knew how long this was going to go on for. But we really quickly pivoted. And there's been quite a few moments for me and Sarah during difficult times when we have pivoted or we have just tenaciously or relentlessly just gone at a problem. And that's happened so many times that I have quite a lot of confidence now that if you throw something difficult mine and Sarah's way, I sort of trust in our ability to overcome it because we've done it quite a lot. So I'm not scared of the hard stuff now to do the business, scared of other stuff, but the hard stuff to do our business, I just I just sort of trust in mine and Sarah's ability to tackle it together. I love that. What do you think are the uncomfortable steps when people first embrace a different direction for their career and career development? I think identity is a massive one. You know, people connect their identity to what they do. So a lot of my career identity up until the point I left to go and do Amazing If was 
it was tied to the companies that I worked for. So I worked for a world-leading technology company. And then I worked for Virgin, the most entrepreneurial organization in the world. I worked for these companies and that that said something about me. And to leave that behind and go and work on a small business that no one's heard of, that takes it takes quite a lot of confidence or naivety or stupidity. I don't know. But like if you're really attached to your identity of being a successful person who works for successful businesses, I think taking that risk that you might not be successful and your business is not a known entity, it's quite it's quite hard. So you sort of have this like, well, who am I if I don't do that? And I think that holds a lot of people back feeling like they are who they work for and their success is determined by the organisations that they work for. I think that holds a lot of people back from doing something different. And what would your advice be to those people? I think anybody who wants to do a pivot, so something quite dramatically different from what they're doing today, I would recommend having a like a play before you pivot. So what I mean by that is like side projects like I did, for example, or volunteering, or maybe going four days a week in your current job and one day a week on the thing that you want to do. There's, I think if it is very different to what you're doing, you want to get exposed to it. Like, do you actually enjoy it? Or does it is it perfect on paper? But actually, the reality of the role is a bit different. Do you need to develop some skills that you've not got yet? You know, in order for you to be good at that thing, maybe you do have a bit of development work to do. I definitely did. Everything from you know building websites to presenting and doing business development. Like I had some things I had to learn before I could do my job full time. And I think it just gives you that opportunity to pivot with confidence because you know you like it. You know you've got the skills. You've probably built a bit of a reputation in that area by doing it on the side. You've probably created a bit of a community. And I think if you've got those things... You know, like confidence skills, you've got a community and the capability. I think I think actually then you can pivot to something quite different and you can do it successfully. But you are really increasing the risk if you haven't done that because you're going into the unknown and you're not really bringing a lot with you. So interesting. And I wish I wish you'd have given me that advice when I left my very <laughs> successful Kushti job during COVID. <laughs> And started a business where, and I had a side hustle already, so I knew what it was like having a a business that was growing. So I really relate to what what you talk about there. But I went into this other world and realised that actually I had such a brilliant team around me before that did all the things that I couldn't anymore. That actually when I went into the business and realised, you've got to do your own spreadsheets. (laughs) You've got to do your own PowerPoint. You've got to do everything right. And that's really quite scary. You get really quite senior. And I think you almost lose the basics. Well, you do, but then it goes the other way because you then relearn the basics because there is no one else to do them. So you are doing WordPress for your website. You are posting on LinkedIn every day. You, you You are doing all of this. And then you get, you know, don't probably not amazing at it, but you get good enough at it. And then as you grow, you need to bring other people into your team. And so then you've got to let go of it. So having like taken complete control of it and got kind of okay at it, then you have to let someone else do it. And that, that has been challenging to not try to step in and do it the way that you've been doing it and let people who've probably got more capability than you own their role. And I think when it's your own company as well, that's quite an interesting challenge to give people the space when it's your thing. And you'd quite like to control it. Well, yeah. 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 Or, you, or you're like, oh, I could do that faster. Because I'm, you know me, I'm very driven by like speed and efficiency. And I know that that doesn't always result in the best outcomes. But that's like the primary urge that I often feel when I'm in a situation. If it's too slow or it's not right, I'm like, I'll just do it myself. Yeah. Which obviously is not a great behavior to create a brilliant team. But I do have to 
hold that in quite hard because that is that is my urge in most situations. And quite ironic as well, given what your business is about, being, you know, being about a better career for everyone, which is about empowering others exactly. to be at their best. <laughs> which I do try to do, but there is something inside me that's just like, I could maybe do a little bit better. <laughs> I hold it in, I hold it in for the benefit of other people. I think that brings me very nicely on to what truly makes you uncomfortable? What makes me uncomfortable? I think that one of the things that I find really difficult is stopping. Stopping or slowing down. And that that can actually be like a small stop. That can be in the middle of a meeting that's been going one direction. My business partner might say, hang on a minute, should we just take a break and and then we'll think about this later? And I'd be like, no, like, no, I like don't have breaks in the day. So Sarah, business partner, she's, she doesn't. I don't have no breaks <laughs> in the day. She's really, she's really reflective. She loves a walk. She likes space. That's how she's at her best. And when we're working together, she gets really frustrated because I'll just be like, well, we don't often have a day together. Like we should maximize every minute and get as much as possible done. And she's like, no, Helen, um, you know, I have been called like relentless and a bit of a robot sometimes because I just, I just, when I'm in a zone, I want to get it done and I want to get it done quickly and I want to get it as much as I can done. So I find it very hard when things are slow or when things need to stop in most, in most situations. Like sometimes that's a very small stop in a day. And sometimes that might be a bigger stop because you know, I'm not well or a project's been put on pause or you suddenly can't invest in something. And I just find I just want to keep everything moving all of the time. That's just reminds me, I was lucky enough to be at your brilliant event last week. Um, and uh, Sarah said on stage, shared with all everybody, I wanted to take a pause on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. And instead of taking a pause, did you suggest... Doing quite a bit extra. Yeah, yeah. So we were struggling. This is like before August. We were struggling to find the time to record our podcast. And we were trying to get it all in so that we could have a bit of space in August. And we couldn't find like, you know, the slots that we needed to record the podcast. And some somewhere I was like, oh, instead of finding 90 minutes in our diary, which we normally need to record the podcast, I was like, what if we did a shorter podcast? And then we haven't got to find such an amount of time. And actually, if we only recorded for 10 minutes at a time, then we could record like lots more, we could do lots of 10 minute slots. So it went from how do we find the time to record four episodes to how do we record 20 episodes? And I think Sarah's, Sarah's like, that's madness. But what we did it, we got it done. Challenge your limits, Gemma. <laughs> and wasn't August also quite a challenging time for you personally? Yes, I had a rather large operation in August. I had open lung surgery, which sort of took me, which is why we had to sort of pre-record uh, before August because we, did, we weren't quite sure how I was going to be. So that was a very forced stop, which I did not enjoy. <laughs> I did not enjoy for multiple reasons I did not enjoy August. But feeling like I couldn't work in the way or at the pace that I wanted to and that I was having to rely on other people. Just it just that just doesn't really feel like me. I'm I'm the person who helps make things happen. So to sort of feel like I'm being held back and needing other people's help. That's very contrary and uncomfortable for me to kind of sort of sit in that space. And where do you think that comes from? Both the fear of stopping, but also, as you just said, the having to ask for help. I think that there is probably a thought process that says, well, 
that has enabled me to get to here. Even though other people might say, oh, it's good to slow down. I'm like, yeah, but is it? Because speeding up's worked quite well for me. So, you you know, you like, you kind of have a bias towards the way you have behaved. So mm. I kind of think, well, actually, yes, I do work a lot and I work hard and I work fast, but actually it's worked for me. So it's quite hard to unpick that, I think, and say, oh, I'll just do something different. And I'm like, well, but why? Because this has worked for me. But I think the origins of my drive, I suppose, and this sort of desire to do and use my time to the best of my ability and to create as much as I can, that kind of drive, I think that comes from my childhood, both in having ambition and realising that I was the only person that was going to enable that. I had a lot of support, you know, like my mum my mum was brilliant, but also I think that the scale of my ambitions was quite big. And I thought, well, no one's gonna no one's gonna do this for me. Like the only person that's going to create these opportunities is you. So I think that my mum always worked. And I think this sort of need for independence came quite quickly. And that drive has been in me for a long time. But also when I was sort of 10, my father died unexpectedly. And so I think from quite a young age, I've also just seen that life is just very finite. And you can't predict what's going to happen and who's going to be here and who's not going to be here. And so I think it has always just made me think, do as much as you can, do it as well as you can, and then do a bit more. (laughs) Because you don't know, you don't know how long you've got to do it. And and what a waste not to is, I guess, the the thought process that goes behind the way that I work. And sorry to hear about your your dad. And, And at such a young age, that must have really had quite a significant impact. I mean, I was 10. So of, of course it did. My parents were divorced. And it did. I actually think it was worse for my sister. She was 16. And I think that's such a hard age mm. to, you know, you've got so many emotions, haven't you, when you're 16. I think I actually think that was harder for her than it was for me and harder for my mum. That was her first boyfriend, the person that she's had her two children with. And I think at 10, you miss a daddy, but you don't know them as a grown up. And I think I think it's a very different type of loss. I think it's probably more as I've grown up that I've missed my dad more. You know, that was sad at 10, but it's more when you have children and you're like, oh, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Or when you get married or when you publish a book and you're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if mm. dad was at a book launch? That kind of, is, I think it's probably been more moments as I've got older that I've realised the loss more than I think I probably appreciated when I was 10. And so going back to that time in the summer mm. when you had to pause and I can see you sitting uncomfortably (laughs) and I remember (gasps) saying so you're gonna have to take some time out and you were like yes because you physically had to yeah so you had to pause and you had to allow yourself to recover Mm. so how how was how was that time so I I think almost the build-up to it was perhaps worse than the first week or so because I literally didn't have a choice I think in the build-up to it I was like oh I'm not going to be able to do these things that I want to do and I'm not going to be able to work in the way that I normally work and all that kind of stuff. But then actually, particularly during the first week or so, doing something wasn't really an option. You know, I just needed to sleep and recover and have a really little cuddle for my mum. I couldn't have a hug. That was like that was actually quite hard. I couldn't have a hug for about five weeks. Um, That's tough. It's really, it's really, yeah. and you know, you've got two little children who yeah. just want to give you a hug. And even now, it's so sweet, even now, like months on, I'll lean over to give like my daughter a kiss in bed. And even now she'll say to me, I mean, is it okay to cuddle you now? And it's been okay to cuddle me for ages, but obviously that for her 
it's such a memory that they couldn't hug their mum for, you know, this five week period. So actually during the first week or two, work didn't feature as much in my head as I thought it would, because I think I was just having to go through quite a painful process. But then after about 10 days, I was like, right, I'm done being poorly now. <laughs> I'm done. I've been ill. I've been recovered. and I'm, I'm done. And it takes a little bit longer than that to recover. But I think mentally I was like, I'm ready to go now. My body was in no way near ready to go, but I was let, like, let me at work now. But you know, you go, you go through it and you realise what you can cope with. And I think the whole thing has made me realise, A, how resilient a body can be which I'm very grateful for and then also how again like together Sarah and I are very resilient she often suffers from migraines and that's where I come in to help her and then I had all this situation and she was amazing like she planned out in a way that I'm rubbish at she sort of looked ahead and looked at the dates and planned our work just to give me the space to be well I'm very grateful again for sort of her recognizing I needed help when I probably either didn't recognize it for myself or didn't want to ask for it. And do you think you've got better at asking for help? No, (laughs) no. I think what I have realized is that help can look quite different. For example, when when I was funny to have poorly when I was recovering from operation August basically you would message me frequently and it was helpful but it wasn't sort of what I would think of as sort of active help like you weren't and I didn't I didn't need you to order food shopping so this isn't any feedback <laughs> but you know it wasn't like like my mum came to my house and gave me a little back massage because my back had spasmed mm. and that was helpful yeah. and that was a very active help you know she was, and she could only do it with her thumbs because it was too painful so she was like doing this little back massage with with her thumbs it's very sweet so that was kind of one kind of help it's very active help you know she she would I couldn't um, I couldn't even pick up a kettle and so she would make me a cup of tea without me asking for it like very kind of active help I was like oh that's really useful. And then what you would do is just check in and be like, how are you going? Like, you know, and, and it was it's a very different kind of help. Mm. And then my business partner's help was very practical. She was sort of helping me create the space at work. And so I think what it's made me realize is I definitely feel uncomfortable asking for help. But sometimes the word help is a bit too big. Like, what is the type of help you need? Mm. Is it support, which is just a message from somebody because it creates a bit of connection? Is it like a doing kind of help like can you do something that I can't do at the moment or is it sort of like this very proactive I can see a problem that you can't like Sarah was seeing and so I'm going to sort this out I think it's just made me appreciate that help is not just one thing and perhaps the more specific you can be about what would be helpful might make it easier for you to ask for what you need I think it's made me think that and knowing you've got that support around you Mm. that support network I think it's really interesting, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone else do this, dissect different ways of help. <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> I'm going to move back to uncomfortable. Can you think of a time when someone said something that made you feel uncomfortable? I mean, I had a very recent conversation with my mum about my priorities. <laughs> that was quite a hard conversation. She was just, like, I'm doing lots of things at the moment, which I love. Like, I love all the things that I do. And I think that's part of the problem is because I'm somebody who likes to do a lot of things and because I create opportunities and I found something that I love, I think sometimes my ability to prioritise, it just becomes quite hard because 
I say yes to everything. And then I either compromise myself or the quality of my work or that I don't consider the impact on other people. Um, and my mum basically called me on it in a way that I think only mums can. <laughs> she was like, Helen and Elizabeth, great, aren't they? Helen Elizabeth. <laughs> I, like, I know I'm in trouble when it's Helen Elizabeth. So <laughs> Helen Elizabeth, you need to sort your priorities out. And I was like, oh, well, I don't want to talk about this mum. But like, she was not letting that that bone go. Mm. So that that was quite an uncomfortable conversation because you know when someone says something and you you know it's true. I think sometimes that's what makes it uncomfortable in that they're saying it and it's difficult to hear, but it's uncomfortable because you know it's true and you just haven't said it to yourself or sorted it out right now. But I think having some of those people in your life who have those difficult conversations with you is really helpful because they're often the things that we avoid for ourselves. And I think I have collected a few people who are sort of willing to have a difficult conversation with me that I might I might avoid. And it is never comfortable, but it it does make me think a bit more deeply about my decisions. Your mum having that conversation where you're thinking about the fact that maybe you're not as present as you would like to be for your children. Yeah. And she's essentially, as mums do, putting it out there. Yeah, you know, you try not to be defensive. Yeah. You know, it's so hard, isn't it? When you're like really trying not to be defensive because I think people's perspective is always... I think you should always listen to it. And sometimes you kind of rush to respond too quickly. And do I agree with everything? And do I feel like I have to do everything my mum says to me at age 40? No, <laughs> I'm like, I'm my own person. But do I also respect her advice and wisdom and ability to look at my situation with a bit more distance than me and sort of play back what she's seeing? I do, I do really respect that. But yeah, it's not, it's not always easy to hear. And I think anything that makes you think, am I working in a way that is affecting the quality of my parenting I mean what I can't think of many more uncomfortable questions to ask yourself than that because you know obviously your children are your priority but I also love my work and just making those two things fit together is a constant sort of recalibration like I get it right one week I get it wrong the next so you yeah beat myself up a little bit probably about some of those decisions and I bet you doing, I, I, and I, I know this anyway, and I know this about myself as well, like you doing what you love, it's going to make you a better, a better person and a better role model and a better parent anyway. Well, I'm quite looking forward to bringing my children into my work a bit yeah. more because um, I think it's so important that they see what they can be. And I don't mean like just be, be me, but like see, you know, like in a podcast studio, like a child could sit in here and be like, oh, I want to sit on that chair or actually I want to sit listening and doing the editing and I feel like the more you can expose them to the more they, they see and the more exciting it is um, and so I'm actually really looking forward to exposing them to some stuff and I've just got to find the right day obviously quite a lot of my days are spent in an office delivering training on a camera in my office so it's probably not the most exciting day for them but today would have been a good day for them to come and see you know this together that would have been a great day for them so do you think you've had a bit of a squiggly career yourself Yes, I think a squiggly squiggly basically means that your career has um, the freedom and flexibility to develop in different directions and you don't have to be defined by only becoming more senior or succeeding just by getting promoted. And so you can squiggle in one company, Mike, if you feel like you've got choice and control of your career development, you can squiggle in one company or you can do what I have done, 
which my squiggly career has gone across companies. Mm. You know, so I've worked in a technology company like Microsoft and I've worked in Virgin, which is a bit of everything. I've worked in consumer goods at Procter & Gamble. Like I have sort of squiggled in quite a lot of different industries, mainly in marketing across those businesses. That's been quite a consistent thing for me. But yeah, that's probably been a big part of my squiggly career is the confidence to work in lots of different contexts, mm. like in, in the UK and in international. And I love it. I love it. You collect so many insights from working with different people in different places. And thankfully, because the work I do now, I just get to work with lots of companies. But I, I feel like you absorb you absorb it all. You know, the more people that you work with, the more information you absorb. So true. So true. I'm learning all the time, mm. which I love. I think it's that's what life's all about. How do you approach an uncomfortable situation? I think I... I kind of listen, actually, generally when something's really uncomfortable, I kind of take a step back and I try to stay calm. Like if, it, if a situation's quite uncomfortable, you know, so let's think what would be uncomfortable. Somebody who wants to kind of actively argue with you or something that's gone wrong, like there's a kind of like a panic in the air because there's a big problem and that feels really uncomfortable. And um, I think that something in me just becomes very like, OK, just stay still, <laughs> stay still and listen and don't rush, don't rush. Um, and so I think sometimes in uncomfortable situations, I um, that's some kind of, I think it's probably like a defense mechanism, honestly. Mm. I think it probably is, but it seems to actually be quite helpful because it gives me the chance to like sort of scan like what's going on here and who's contributing to this and and what what can I say to add value to this situation rather than, you know, like, sort of rushing in um so i think that that's generally in uncomfortable situations how how i respond but i think the problem with it i think sometimes it can look to other people that i don't care interesting you know because it's it's there's all this going on there's debate or what, whatever's happening and i just kind of almost go quite like sort of still like i'm like mm. um and for other people they might think oh why isn't helen engaging or does she not care about this but i'm just sort of waiting to work out I don't want to add to a panic. I don't want to create more confusion. I don't want to add an unnecessary opinion. It's just making like a bigger problem. Um, so I'm generally just processing quite a lot. But I think I definitely have had the feedback that when I'm just sat there processing, it's like, are you like, are you, are you part of this? Are you bothered about this? Does this matter? And I'm like, no, it does. I'm just, I'm just like working out what I can actually add. So, so that feeling where other people might think that you don't actually care that must be quite that must be quite challenging for you well yeah because of course i care like i care mm. i care about everything i care about my team i care about my company i care about my friends i care about my family like i care um but i don't know you can't i don't think you can always change you know i don't i can't that is just who that is who i almost like the more panic or difficult or uncomfortable a situation is probably the more my defense mechanism sort of takes me out of it a little bit and I will I will I will contribute and I will question and I will get involved but in a very very controlled way I think I am my defense mechanism is to be very controlled about a situation um that's just an inbuilt thing so I would feel really uncomfortable if people thought I didn't care and I have had that feedback um and all I can do is assure people that I do but I also I don't think I can I don't think I can change this part of me that responds to those situations in that very very controlled way. 
Do you think you try to control the situation because maybe you don't want to show that vulnerable side of you? Uh, perhaps. Perhaps. I think, like, will it help? Sometimes, you know, I think, I don't think I'm that comfortable with being vulnerable, but I think, I think I'm, but it, my focus is, will it help? You know, in that situation, in that moment, what is the most helpful thing that I can do? And I think, and I may be very wrong, but I think it's in my mind, I'm like, well, it's rarely being being vulnerable. What's the point in me showing that I'm upset about this or that I'm annoyed about this situation or that I, I'm like, what's the point in me doing that? Surely the most helpful thing for me to do now is to sort this situation, you know, not not contribute to making it harder or bigger issue, whatever it is, I think. Um, so I, I would say I put a lid on vulnerability because I think it in my head, I'm like, that would limit my ability to sort this out faster. So I just want to go back to you specifically saying you don't feel comfortable about being vulnerable. Where do you think that comes from? I think my um, my mum has always been a, you've just got to get on with it. You've got to make the me- most of it. You've got to get on with it. You've got to find your way through it. Don't dwell, do it. <laughs> that, that's the sort of mantra that my mum has. And I think that that is part of me you know that that's like from again from like a very young age that is kind of the 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 way that we would have conversations and if I had a problem I'm like time to move on <laughs> time to move on Helen but I got it man got it so the, you know the, I actually remember so vividly the one or two max times I I have upset my mum in like Three, there are three, there are three. I'm 40 years old. I remember three times in my life when I've upset my mum because my point being that my mum wouldn't often show vulnerability. So that when she did show that, when I had hurt her feelings and she showed me that I had hurt her feelings, it like, it's like a knife in my heart, Gemma. And also it's like this like embossed memory in my brain because I didn't see that from my mum very often. And, um, and I think that's probably sort of like a behavior that she's this kind of control it and that's sort of a behavior that she has perhaps unintentionally role modeled but is is sort of what I have absorbed as the way I am and do you think you now role model that for your your children mm, interesting question do you, have they I was gonna say they've not really upset me yet <laughs> maybe it's coming maybe it's coming um perhaps Perhaps. I do. I think I, my mum always talked to me. I do talk to my, my children an awful lot about their feelings. Um, they're very different little beings. Um, my little boy, Henry, he's eight and he's got loads of stuff going on at school. And like, we always talk like about what's going on. Um, and like we do like five things we love about each other before bed. And we talk quite a lot about feelings and emotions. Getting a framework. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It is. We do like five things we love about you. You clutch at straws by number five, but um, but it is. Um, so I I try to, I try, but maybe I do, Gemma. Maybe maybe this drive for control and to present a, a positive feelings rather than indulging in 
unpositive feelings, um, which is what I know, un- indulging, you know, is how I would frame it. Um, maybe that is what they see and maybe that will frame how they manage their emotions too. It's interesting because I, oh, what I've learned in my career is the more I show vulnerability, the more powerful it becomes in terms of building cultures in my own leadership, in the way that I am as a parent. Um, and I don't think it's easy to show that vulnerability. But I think it's something that, that I think it's really important to be able to, to, it comes back to being able to be your true self and it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, but I don't quite know with children, like what, what are you supposed to say? Here's your, like, Cheerios and and and, uh, and, and have a, a cry, and a, yeah, and a heavy thought that I'm having in the morning. Like, I'm not quite sure when you're like when when we when we're supposed to kind of weave this sort of emotional intelligence into our children. I just try to to talk to them and help them to talk about their problems. But I don't. It is a really fair point. Like I am a very controlled about my emotions, and I probably am unintentionally role modeling that for my children. And I probably hadn't thought about that. Not that I'm trying to make you. I'm just going to go home tonight. I'm going to cry in front of them, and then they're going to be fine. (laughs) But you know what? I've 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 tried not to cry in front of Josh, but it's happened. And actually, he then becomes so caring. He's like, "What can I do to help you, Mummy?" And I see a whole different side of him because I show that. And it's the same with my teams. They go, "Oh, she's actually human." Yeah. (laughs) So I think there's 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 power in vulnerability. and I think it's just a, that in itself is probably a whole other podcast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, Henry said to me, um, uh, I think I'd had a hard day at work. And I think I'd said, he was like, mummy, you look really tired. And I was like, oh, Henry, it's been like a hard day. And then he was like, and he said to me, he's like, mummy, why do you work so hard? And you, and again, back to these things mm. that you, again, I think you do. Children are like these little mirrors, aren't they? Um, with their sort of questions and statements that sort of based on what they see in quite a simple way, but sometimes their reflections and the thoughts are very provoking. And do you think that's useful to to have a mirror yeah. put up to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Particularly one that's where the, the questions aren't loaded. I think, you know, mirrors that come from your peers or your partners or your friends they, sometimes those 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 questions are a bit loaded, like they've already got an opinion, <laughs> and then you know, and it's like it's behind the question is their opinion. Whereas I think with children, it's not a loaded question. It's innocent. It's, it's an innocent question based on what they see or how they feel, and I think that's probably why they're so powerful. Whereas parents, yeah, yeah, very Mothers. different. <laughs> Chats with your mum, <laughs> they're loaded. So true. What have you learned from getting uncomfortable and helping others get uncomfortable? I've definitely learned that it creates connection. I've definitely learned that. People like helping people. And I knew that, you know, we talk about it in our work and I know about the help is high. So I kind of knew that. But when you experience it, whether that's solving a problem or helping you because you've had a hard day, I have seen that make relationships better. Mm. The thing that I've learned is if I don't put myself in a situation where people can help me I'm probably not building as brilliant relationships as I could because I think to to your point about vulnerability I think that that just strengthens relationships so that's definitely something I've helped I've also learned that sharing your failures and mistakes are often more interesting than your successes I've definitely seen that in our work that successes are very shiny but they're not always that relatable 
And people connect with you more almost when they know that something's gone wrong and something's been really tough. Again, to your point, people realise that you're kind of more human when they hear those things. So that's something that I've definitely experienced through my work and in reflecting on the connections that I've, I've got. And have you shared those failures when you've had the fact? I can't imagine you've had too many, but but I also think that you're constantly experimenting and not everything is going to work. And that's brilliant, right? Because that's the way you'll learn and, and get even better. So I think it's all, I mean, I, I personally think it's all about learning from our failures. And I've personally failed many, many times, but I'm happy to share in the hope that it might help others get yeah, to the answer quicker. We and, have something in our team called mistake moments. So everybody shares and it's very open and they're like small things. They're, nice. I missed a meeting because I was too busy to put in my diary. So they're very, you know, they're small things, but we share them A, to get it off your chest so it doesn't like magnify and, and B, to kind of get some support and to make sure that actually your mistake could be a mistake that other people can avoid. So they're small ones. And then there are just sort of bigger failures mm. that I've had. Like when I've overcommitted myself to something because I struggled to say no, whatever it is. But I think sharing those failures, there's often other people who are experiencing something similar. And so it it helps them to them to realise that they're not alone mm. and that actually everybody, everyone has like, you know, hard times or things have gone wrong. So um yeah, I don't I don't always find it I have to think very consciously about sharing failures. Like I don't go around all day going, here's something I did really badly. But I do know <laughs> that in the right moment it is a source of connection when you do it. Like it's not always easy, but I think the more you do it, the more you see the benefit of it. Why is it important that, do you think, that brands get uncomfortable? Because they've got customers and no one's life is neat. So I think... That's what you just about. <laughs> yeah, no, no one's life is neat. So I think a brand presenting a sort of picture of perfection is not one that people can often sort of connect or relate to. It's like an ideal, but, you know, if it comes across in advertising or whatever it is, I don't think it's not an ideal that people often relate to. Was it Oatly that have shared, like, on their website, they've got, like, all of their mistakes that they've made in Oatly, and they've just shared them really transparently. I guess it's our mistake moments that they've used now and gone, like, this is some stuff that's gone wrong. Mm. And I was reading about a friend called Anna who has got a business called Two Chicks, and she did, like, How I Made It in, in the paper this weekend, and she was talking about one of the products on a supermarket shelf sort of exploded and that was you know the kind of um, the mistake they made but that's part of the story of her brand and what people see is someone trying and innovating and passionate about their business and that and then they want to support that business because it's got a personality it's not fake you know it's a it's a real personality a real story that people can relate to and so i think the more brands can represent their customers the more real the relationships between them and the more loyalty I think you create between a brand and a customer. So if you could leave us with one piece of advice on how to get uncomfortable and, and be in a, a prickly chair like today, what would it be? I think it, it would probably be when we talked about asking for help in that I think that everybody needs help and a lot of people don't find it easy to ask for help because it feels big and scary and maybe a sign of weakness. And so I think maybe being specific about what is the help that you need, like help is a small word that feels very big. Mm. I think I think if you can almost make the ask smaller, like one of the things I could do is some help in this meeting today. That's sort of much more specific and easier to say. And so ask for the help that you need, but be specific about what that looks like. And then I think that makes it easier to get 
what you need and kind of easier to ask for it. I think it's when you ask for help and you ask for support. Everyone's willing. Most people are willing to give you that help and support and you realise you're not alone. And actually, that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably what this year has taught me is ask for help trust that people want to help you and they enjoy helping you and um, sort of just let the help happen don't try to take control of every everything every day thank you and that's a brilliant piece of advice to end on so thank you so much for coming and be willing to get uncomfortable and sit in the prickly chair thank you so much (laughs) thank you i'm Gemma greaves and are you sitting uncomfortably is a fresh air production and the producers are izzy clark and clara kavanagh If you've enjoyed our now award-winning podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us. And if you're feeling really kind, leave us a review. We read all of them and we appreciate them so much. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests like Helen. And I want to continue to have these prickly conversations with incredible people. Thank you so much. Until next time.